Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hi, I've got a prescription for diabetes test strips. How much is the copay? That could take me a while to calculate. In the meantime, you should think about over-the-counter Contour Next test strips. You get 35 for $19.99, and they're highly accurate. For full details, visit ContourNext.com slash radio. Do it for the team. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids 5 and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, talented freelance writer, a lot of his work at 538, some other places, and we go through all of the second round series and then some takeaways from the first round, and then plus Jared and I are both CBA transactions guys, so we talked a little bit about the, the 2021 offseason as well. Podcast runs well over an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always appreciate it. We're in this interesting place where the second round just started and the first round, I mean, some series have been over a little longer, but the first round, I think of it as just completed in in some varietal. So I want to start this with where you want to go, whether you want to talk about some of the stuff that's already happened or the series that are going on now. Um, I, I want to start with one of the series that's happening now because I'm just extremely confused about what the heck is going on with the Bucks. Like, how are they unable to create any offense at all against the Nets? It doesn't track for me, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on there, and I can't think of, like, a good reason why they're essentially unable to do anything at the moment. What, what's what's your read on that? It is a challenging question. Um, my first thought on it has been that generally the general approach, and it's funny because this has often been true of series that James Harden has been involved in, which he was involved in this one for a whopping like 45 seconds so far, unfortunately, <laughs> is 
a switching system, which the Nets have not been in all the time, but a lot of the time, generally that makes opponents more of a station-to-station team, and there are switch buster approaches that you can do there are lots of different different things you know like it's i mean nate and i did like basically whole podcasts on this when the rockets and warriors were playing in all those all those big series a couple years ago and a, a thought that i saw i wish i remembered who to give credit to for this was basically it at times it seems like the nets know milwaukee's offense better than milwaukee does and so Milwaukee seems very unprepared for how that affects them. And the other big problem, I, I think back to something Clay Thompson said years ago. It's actually in the first year of Steve Kerr. He had this kind of riff on how one of the big changes in coaching staffs was the Warriors had to shift their their understanding, their expectations of what a good shot was. And so basically, it was, in, in a way, it was like, I mean, Clay doesn't do this, but it could have been seen as like a pretty severe criticism of Mark Jackson. Like, that isn't the way Clay thought about it. But basically, the idea was that the Warriors could get better shots now. So they needed to think that what was previously a good shot is now not. You need to work for something better. And Milwaukee is having exactly that problem in a different way, which is they are satisfied taking bad shots. And so their offense, I mean, at the beginning of game two, like you're like, okay, you know, now they've seen they've seen the Nets. The Nets are not a great defensive team. They can do all these sorts of things. They can use their size and everything else. The first four or five shots they took were all contested mid-rangers. And mm-hmm. yes, it's true. Sometimes against the switching defense, you're that's what you're going to end up with. But they were starting with that too often. And I thought that that, you know, Middleton, and I would say in certain respects, Giannis is actually the biggest defender there because for Giannis, the difference between a jump shot and a non-jump shot is more dramatic than everybody in the league. And to the point where I've generally said he shouldn't take many jump shots you know like if if it's certain points if you want to get into a rhythm and everything else and basically every jump shot Giannis takes whether it goes in or not is a victory for the defense because the expected value moving forward of those jump shots is not that high it's definitely not high like at all (laughs) the the that in there um I think kind of throws off how not high it is um and it's definitely like I agree with you it's an enormous win for the defense if and when Giannis takes a jumper um I'm more confused about like why they can't create in any of the switches like you would think that if you get a switch and you know it's Giannis on Blake or Giannis on Bruce Brown or you know Giannis on Kyrie or whoever or or Middleton on any one of those guys like why are they not getting better shots off against them and it's like sometimes it seems like they have too quick a trigger on like pull up threes. Sometimes it seems like they're not trying for a good shot at all and just being like, this shot is here. I'm going to take it. Like, I don't know. I'm just like, it boggles my mind that they're unable to create against the defense that, you know, yes, they're playing well. Yes, they're locked in. They're switching everything and it's sort of throwing the Bucks off of their rhythm. But they have guys that should still be able to create in those situations. Or like, you know, they're throwing into Brooke Lopez in the post and he's taking like, you know, not working to get any closer than he is when he catches it. Yeah. And just taking like a Porzingis style turnaround fadeaway where he's just like, oh, I'm taller than KD. So I'm just going to shoot this. 
Well, and, 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 it's, and like, it's also like not being proactive. I, I, I'm glad you brought up KD because, like, I mean, yes, Durant like very well could have fouled out of game two. I think he should have been called for his fifth foul at the end of the third quarter. He ended up with five because they didn't call that when he got one in the, he got one in the fourth. But mm-hmm. what you have to do, the biggest thing against a switch everything or damn near everything defense is you put the other team into difficulty. You get basically the least favorable matchups and you attack quickly and aggressively or like quickly and aggressively when you have the advantage so that then they can't double and do everything else unless the double is what you want which in certain certain cases it is and it seems to me like the bucks have just been so flustered in a lot of those circumstances and that they haven't taken the okay this is what you do we want to try to get and like a, a good a good example of how you can do that well is game one of jazz clippers where quinn snyder could not have prepared for this ahead of time that oh the the clippers are going to have luke Kennard in, in crunch time because why would you believe that like why would they why would they do it in the first place how would that happen? And so what they were doing, it was absolutely brilliant, was they were getting Marcus Morris in the action, and then they were using Kennard's man to set a screen. And so what that does is it puts somebody who's worse at getting through the screen, pairing them with somebody that they don't want to switch. And so the Jazz are getting these great looks for primarily Donovan Mitchell. And the mm-hmm. Bucks, I haven't seen them do basically any of that kind of stuff of what what does what is the thing if if a team is switching everything what is the combination of players on our side and their side that is the worst for brooklyn and the best for us how do we make that happen and how do we do that until we basically force them to quit and yeah or why not like go at joe harris more or like go at if shamit's on the floor go at shamit every time down the court like right especially because you got to like, make it like, painful for some of these guys to be on the court that was what made me you know just to bring it back to another series and I, and I think that they weren't necessarily equipped to do it in the best way but that was the most perplexing thing about the Knicks Hawks series where they just didn't the Knicks just didn't make it painful for the Hawks to have Trey Young on the court which obviously they're going to have him on the court most of the time either way but they didn't make it painful for them and they didn't make it painful for them to have Lou Williams on the court yeah or or Herder at different points Lou Herder was better defensively in that series than I expected but like the Hawks play a lot of limited defensive players in their rotation right and like the Nets play a bunch of those guys too um and it's like why are you attacking KD and Bruce Brown or even like Blake in the post like draw Blake into space make him you know change his feet multiple or change directions multiple times in quick succession if you're going to attack KD, Brooke Lopez, like try to get actually to the basket instead of just trying to shoot over him. If you're going to attack Bruce Brown, do it at the basket, not on the perimeter. Like it's just they're attacking the wrong guys. And when they attack the wrong guys, they're attacking them in ways that you shouldn't be attacking them. And it's just like, how can they not figure something better out? It's just for a team that's been so good offensively and was much more varied offensively this year than in previous years. It's really disappointing. It is disappointing. And I, you know, so there are different ways to attack switches, but like typically being bigger, stronger, longer is a pretty good way to do it. You know, like you, you have, you have all these guys that, and, and it is not a circumstance like some of the criticism I've levied at various players over time, whether I mean, Vooch is an example of this at times, DeAndre Ayton of when guys that when you get a smaller smaller player on them you can't put them in the basket like there are certain guys who just aren't great at that they don't have those Porzingis is actually a fantastic example of that somebody who he's gotten better but he's still not great at 
that uh, in a way like Jokic's, where Jokic might be Jokic and Embiid. Probably Jokic being the best because of some of the certain like he doesn't draw, he doesn't do as many offensive fouls, but like when you have an advantage, end it. You know, like and it basically you're going to get something good and force them to attack, force them to send somebody else. And then I mean, Jokic is such an unbelievable passer. LeBron is also very good at that, and we haven't seen the Bucks do that enough. Whether and and part of that is I think that Giannis and Lopez in particular they're not great at handling the ball. Lopez never passes in those circumstances. So if you send a double, like there was one time where there were four guys in the paint and Lopez is just like, "Yep, still taking the shot," and that's a part of it. But it, I, and like there have been moments when Drew Holiday's look great, like he's attacked downhill and they've gotten something else. And then the other part, which was something I identified the series. I mean, this series changed instantly, and it was things I didn't foresee. I did pick the Nets, but I didn't think it was going to happen this way. Is that, to me, the best part of Milwaukee's offense this year has been transition. Like, that they're going aggressively, they're getting these threes, they can sometimes get to the basket, and they're going hard. Like, they're going they're going after it a lot. And that brings two challenges in a series against the Nets specifically. So one is the Nets are so good offensively that you're getting you're getting fewer live balls, let's call it. Like that's just happening less. Now you can run off makes, you can do other things, and so that's one. The second is when you play your starters a higher proportion of the game, you know, assuming it was going to be competitive the whole way through, mm-hmm. that's a little bit harder. You know, like, yeah, players have a little bit more energy. You can, you can, you can push the, you know, fatigue. You can push it a little bit tougher. You're never playing on back to back. So that type of stuff. So I think both of those are running in concert. And then there's the other part that in certain circumstances, the Bucks' best. Some of their most effective transition players aren't in their starting line. Like they, you know, Drew can be good in that, but like I don't love personally, I don't love Middleton as a transition player. Giannis is good in specific elements, but it has to be those things. He's not like I don't love him as a ball handler, but he's great as a finisher. Um and so and DiVincenzo can be a really nice player in those circumstances, and he's unavailable. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that they don't have a ton of like transition ball handlers is what I would say. It's a, a criticism I've levied on the Sixers at times too, um, where you, you kind of need Simmons to have it because the, a lot of the other guys like either don't push it or don't make great decisions fast enough. So I think that's a part of it too, is that they're, they're having to play in the half court more and it's not like they're bad at that, at least in the regular season. Like they were, they were a solid yeah. tra- half court offense, but they've been pretty, they've been genuinely bad in the series so far. Yeah, I mean, some of it, like, Middleton, I think, in large part in the half court, is just missing shots, like... Yes, um, and he's taking, harder, he's taking harder ones than he should, but he also is making missing shots that he usually makes. Yeah, so, I mean, his shot quality um, from second spectrum is actually higher in this series against the Nets than it was during the regular season. Interesting, that's good to know. shocked me, but he's underperforming by, like... 13 percentage points whereas during the regular season he overperformed by like five and a half um so that was very surprising to me just in terms of he's taking better shots but that does tell me that like it'll be better in the next few games mostly because it's impossible almost for him to be worse um yeah, but I, mean- I, I was very i was very surprised that his shot quality was better just based on having watched but apparently that isn't the case um so some of it is that some of it i think drew is also just missing some shots i do think he's taking a little bit tougher ones i think Giannis is willingly giving in to taking shots that the defense wants him to take at times um which is a problem and 
Well, and and to to kind of tie it all together, the other stunning thing to kind of for me in this is how little the Bucks have drawn fouls. And mm-hmm. remember, like we're coming off a series where the Nets fouled the ever-loving crap out of the Boston Celtics, a team that is much less dynamic offensively without Jalen Brown, you know, with Kemba being very limited. It was basically the Jason Tatum show, and yet the Nets are still committing 25 fouls a game. And now they're in this series against a team that has physical advantages, that that pushes the ball, and Brooklyn's just stopping them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm less surprised that Brooklyn is not having issues scoring without Harden. Um, I, I am still somewhat surprised that they're not having issues because during the regular season in the non-Harden games, their ball movement just was not nearly as good as it was when he played, which, I mean, if you said that to someone like three years ago, it'd be like, what are you talking about? But not that he isn't a great ball movement, he just was not as willing to move it because that was the system they were playing in Houston for a couple of years. But it's been like, I, I think game two was like their best ball movement game of the season without hard. I agree. Um, and, and I think a lot of it, and this is not just cause I'm like hopelessly biased towards anything positive he does, but a lot of it is they got back to using Bruce Brown as the screener in a lot of their pick and rolls, which is something they didn't do a lot of when Harden was out because they had such good chemistry and it was like that pick and roll was the most efficient in the league during the regular season, the Harden Bruce Brown pick and roll. Um, but they've gotten back to now KD Bruce Brown or Kyrie Bruce Brown. And that was how they got that Blake dunk along the baseline. That was how Brown got a couple floaters. Like he just stone stopped dead in front of Giannis who thought Bruce was going to like try him for a dunk, which why would you think that? Um, and he just like flipped a little floater over his head. And that was how, you know, Blake got the dunk later in the game was because Giannis was thinking about that and he didn't fully help. He was waiting for it and he just dished it to Blake instead. And then Blake dunked on him like that little short roll. And especially they're doing it like even when the Bucks played zone a few times and he's just sort of like standing in the middle of the free throw line or at one of the elbows and the Bucks have not really figured that out and that sequence like get it to him in the middle and he either flips up a floater or he gets it back for another quick pick and roll or he finds Blake or he finds Joe Harris that I think spearheads a lot of ball movement for the Nets and it helps their offense a lot just that little quick action where he gets the ball at the free throw line yeah it's a great point and it also because of how Brown moves after setting a screen it creates some real difficulty for the Bucks just because you have to react differently it's not a lumbering big that all they're gonna do is roll to the rim so you kind of know you know where the action is going from there with Brown it can and not that he's the greatest shooter but he can go back he can create an open look then and also you can force reactions in the defense in a different way, which I think can work really well. And uh, I, that the the Harden Bruce Brown stat is is really fascinating. And I think that y- there are a lot of different people who deserve praise for the way Brooklyn has handled the absence of Harden. I mean, the players deserve the the lion's share because they're the ones who are on the floor doing it. But it does seem like the coaching staff has done a better job than the Bucks, but also than a lot of other teams at shifting their focus and shifting their priorities based on the situation on the ground. So, okay, this is off the table. How does that reorganize? And it's not just like, okay, we we take the hardened section of the playbook and that comes out and then we move everything up. No, now 
Bruce Brown becomes there. And maybe they were going to start emphasizing Bruce Brown anyway. I think it kind of makes some sense within the scope of the series anyway. Mm -hmm. But like that is a from the players and from the coaches, the idea of seeing what's working best and trying things out and also just having a concept. And I would say defensively is really where this has been true of this is who we're playing. This is what we want them to do. And this is what we think they're going to want to do. And and I, I think that Brooklyn so far has done the best job of any team in the postseason through two series. And yeah, they fouled a ton in the first one, but of understanding that and working within it. Now, it helps that in many ways, even though, as you mentioned, and you're right, they have, the Bucks have been more varied offensively this year. There, you could theoretically have a book on Budenholzer and this Bucks team if you wanted to, partially because they played so many series because they've been so good over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And as the rest of the East, other than the Celtics making the conference finals three out of the last four years before this year, um, they, you know, they've been relevant for a, for a little while now. Now, which is amazing when you consider what they were pre-bud, but I think that like I think that that is a really telling thing that also makes me more confident in the Nets as a team, kind of as a playoff team moving forward. Of the idea of like whether that's advanced scouting or tactics or anything like that. Especially now that, I mean, I did not expect Joel Embiid to look like this in the early part of the series, that it looks now like if if the Nets advance beyond the series, which is what I expect at this moment, that they will be facing a stronger opponent in the East Finals than I expected. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily going to face a stronger opponent than I expect. Like, I think the Sixers, I consider them a pretty strong opponent. Well, anyway. I, I'm, I'm saying um, when I thought when I thought Embiid, like this meniscus, was going to really affect uh, him, uh, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, even if they make it through, they're not the same. But yeah, I but, mean, I mean it, he's looking, still, he's looking pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say that like he looks great through the first two games. There's still obviously uh, plenty of time for the knee injury to affect him. That's yes. an injury that you know I've had twice in the same knee and it tends to affect you, you know, different amounts on different days and in different ways. And for me, at least more as time goes on, um, obviously like I'm not bringing any news here. Joel Embiid and I are not the same caliber of athlete and he's, you know, training every day to make sure that the knee doesn't affect him in a way that I'm not obviously, but you know, I, I it's just, I would caution against, he looks great, so he's going to continue That's looking true. great. Like I would think that it's more likely that he is than he isn't, but it's not, you know, a definitive how he looks now is how he will look in the future, if that makes sense. Um so two more things um on Brooklyn. First is I think that a lot of the reason they've stuck with Brown and Blake with Harden out is because so Harden is the best passer on the team. And in order to make up for that, you need everybody on the court, you know, with the exception of Harris, who's just like the best shooting threat in the league, to be a live playmaking threat. And if you want to start like, you know, Jeff Green is out, so they're not going to start him. But like, you're not going to start Claxton in that situation because he's not a playmaker or DeAndre or Shamit. Like, it, it, it helps them a lot that Brown and Blake are their two best passing big men in, in so far as Bruce plays like a big when they're on offense. So I think that's been important for them just to help keep the line moving offensively. And then one thing I think is, so they figured out how to play like that. that some of it was they were forced into using the regular season as like a lab experiment to figure out what works for them simply because 
KD missed a bunch of time, Kyrie missed a bunch of time, and Harden missed a bunch of time, and they missed time all at the same time, and they missed time one at a time, and they missed time two at a time. And, like, so they had to figure out all these different configurations throughout the regular season. And, like, it's something that I've been saying for so long that, like, the best teams and the worst teams should use the regular season as a lab experiment and just figure out what works and what doesn't and who's part of their future and who's not and who's part of their playoffs rotation and who's not. Like, just keep trying stuff because you never know what you're going to need. Part of that was the frustration that people had with the, you know, the Bucks over the last couple of years. Not necessarily insofar as lineups, although people obviously have been wanting them to play more Giannis center looks just to see how it how it would work best in the playoffs, but also schematically. You know, they didn't really do do much different on offense or defense in any of the previous years until this year. The Nets were forced into it, and I think it's benefited them a lot. And you could see that in the way they attacked the Celtics and now in the way they're attacking the Bucks on both ends. Yeah, that's a great point, and I'm, I'm really happy you made it. Let's move to Suns-Nuggets. That game, we were recording this on Thursday mm-hmm. during the day. That, that was the only game on Wednesday. And what has been... I don't know what the what the term you want to use. I guess like validating, frustrating, it's probably both those things is that I would say to an extent my theory of the series is kind of borne out, which is that I, I was concerned that Denver didn't have the personnel to slow down the Phoenix Suns, that you know, especially with their, their injured guard rotation, yes, they did get Will Barton back, which is nice. That they didn't have that, but what I've been struck by, and yes, this is another one of those where regression to the mean can make the Nuggets look better, is how well, and and we'll talk about the Michael Porter Jr. part of this, but like how well the Suns have defended both the, both the theory and the execution, how well the Suns have defended the Nuggets so far. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, the Suns are just really, really good defensively. Yes. I think you got to give a lot of credit there to Monty Williams, who has them just you know, on point with every rotation. I think you got to give a lot of credit to Mikhail Bridges, who's just like so solid and never makes mistakes. I think you got to give credit also to Jay Crowder and Tory Craig, who have sort of been splitting that big forward spot and doing the same thing. And just like, I could not possibly be more impressed with DeAndre Ayton. I mean, unbelievable, this guy. Like, remember before the draft and he was sold as, like, potentially worst defender in the league type of defender? And, like, can you really even spend a top pick on him? Because, you know, as skilled as he is offensively, he's going to be unplayable in the playoffs on defense. I mean, that just looks it, – it looks like it came from a different universe at this point. Like, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's interesting it's, because – It's really incredible. Aiton, there is – so there's one parallel with Ben Simmons and one distinct difference between the two of them which is like guys with the physical tools definitely do not always get it. Like they, they, they don't like you and I could, you know, could go through various, various physically talented players that didn't, but it gives you a much better chance because at least you have the building blocks and Aiden deserves a lot of credit for physically and mentally working on the, working on the things to, you know, he can't do everything yet, but he can do a lot of things well and he tries hard. (laughs) And like that, like if you're, if you are as physically talented and as big as he is, that gets you a lot of the way, and he's he's done an excellent job so far. Yeah, just look at how much harder he's making Jokic work than than Nurkic and Kanter did. Like it's it's like a different world, and not that Jokic can't still handle it. Like the guy was unbelievable last night. It's just that you know nobody else did anything. Um, but having to work like 
10% harder is a lot, especially given the amount that he's being asked to do. And just, I mean, for Aiden to be doing this at, tw- at 22 years old is just wildly impressive. Like, I wrote um, during the season where I basically looked at the West and I was like, I have no idea who's winning this conference. So I'm just going to go through, like, the X factors for all of the top six teams. And mine for the the Suns were Bridges and Aiden because everybody obviously was going to, you know— focus a lot of attention on, you know, this is Booker's first playoffs and what's that going to mean for him and how is he going to look? And I think that, you know, he's passed the tests so far, but I, you know, I think Bridges and Aiton have just as much and for Aiton specifically. So there it's the, I got to pull it up actually now that I think about it, because I want to get the stat exactly right, just in terms of young centers and the, the responsibility that they carry in the playoffs and how poorly that has generally gone for teams that use young centers. So I'm looking at it now. Um, so since the advent of the three-point line, which is like 40 years, there's been 31 times has a center age 22 or younger averaged 25 or more minutes per game in the playoffs. Um, those 31 teams have won a total of 16 playoff series before this year. Only nine of them advanced beyond the first round. Four advanced beyond the second round, three made the finals, and none won the title. Um, since the 2010-11 season, which is, you know, a decade, there's been 12 times where a 22 or younger center um, played 25-plus minutes per game in the playoffs. Three of them won a series, two made the conference finals, one, bam, last year, made the NBA finals, and none won the title. So that's like a lot of history to be working against. And he is playing that heavy minute load. They've already won one series. It sure looks like they're going to win another. Um, it's 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 a lot of history that he is working against, and he's doing really well. And I think you know a lot of credit to him, a lot of credit to Monty, a lot of credit to Chris Paul, who just makes every big man that he plays with so much better. Um, and I think you see that. Just in the way him and he and Aiden interact on the court, um, I'm just, I'm really impressed with this team. It's it's awesome. And something that the Suns have, which I've really valued, um, I, I about like that about the Suns and other teams' past is that they play very few truly bad defenders in their rotation. Booker has improved. You know, I, I still don't think he's great, but like you, he's not at the point where it's just an easy sort of pick at in the way that like Trey mm-hmm. probably still is and numerous other players over. You brought up Lou Williams. That was a, a weakness in the Knicks series too. And they have a lot of guys that they aren't necessarily like Rudy Gobert level pluses, but they're definitely pluses at what they do. And, like, I love Mikhail Bridges. I love him so much. I um, And Crowder's done a very nice job. Chris Paul, I mean, having him more of it. I mean, he was, Chris Paul was so good defensively that even when he couldn't really dribble, he was still worth considering having out there on the floor. And then when they have a little bit more limited defenders, I think a lot of those guys are competing, like campaign is doing that. And it was interesting. There was a little stretch. I think it was in the second quarter where might have been the late first where the Sun, where the Suns had Sharch at center against Jokic. And I'm like, oh no, that's going to be like a torture chamber. And yeah, Jokic did have a couple of couple of good possessions, but generally speaking, you know, Sharch tried hard and it you know it was it was okay. It wasn't it wasn't devastating in the same way that you could have thought it would be in you know in another circumstance. And that was like one of my big fears with the. Phoenix Suns was, oh God, what happens if DeAndre Ayton gets in foul trouble? They have no one else. Like they, they didn't get a Taj Gibson or a, D, a Dwayne Dedman on the, on the, on the scrap people. Like those guys, it's not even really like the buyout market. They were just hanging out. 
Um, mm. And so, and and that's not hurting them. And you could think about it now. It doesn't hurt you. As there could conceptually be a series where it would hurt you more in terms of if a team played had two dangerous centers. The the Nuggets only have one, so it's a little different. But that one is more dangerous than arguably any center you could throw out. You know, everybody knows who the other one is. And so the Suns doing doing all those defensive things right, I, I think. And, and then the other part, which part of it is the, the Nuggets executing better and having better talent, is that they have done a much better job understanding who on the Nuggets is probably not going to hurt you. And like there was a uh, Matt Moore had a good kind of like stream of consciousness, like Twitter response to this last night, where it was like these people going like, oh, the Nuggets need to attack more inside. And it's like, yeah, that's tr- you could think that in theory, and like that's conceptually a way to get easier baskets. But the Suns understand which Nuggets you can kind of that aren't going to annihilate you if you leave them open for for three. And so if you you know like Campazzo and Rivers shot one or two for nine in the game. Now they're not going to shoot two for nine every night, but they're probably not going to shoot seven for ten. And and also, I think that the Suns would be just fine losing to the Nuggets if Compazzo and Rivers go 7 for 10 from 3. Exactly, because you're making everything else more difficult. And when you do, you know, it's it's a different version of the math problem. It's like you you exchange, you add three-point variance to make the two-pointers less valuable and ideally to commit less fouls. And and so if you can do that, if you can do that double, then you're odd, you're not going to win every time, but you're going to have a more favorable chance of winning four out of seven which is the whole goal the goal is not necessarily to win in a sweep though that's great and it might happen in this series um but it's to give yourself the best chance and you and you do that and i i think that the other unfortunately big dynamic as i was watching game two yesterday is that michael porter jr is not right physically yeah, and, that's where I was. That's where I was about to go. And offensively, um, whatever did, happened in Game One, like he clearly um, cannot move the way he was in right. the first and, round. And it, it's it's hitting the Nuggets hard on offense and on defense. Like it's easy when you think <laughs> about how efficient Michael Porter Jr. was offensively this year to say, "Oh my God, if he's going to shoot, if he's going to shoot three of thirteen every game, even with Will Barton back, that's not that's not going to work." But it to me that's that's a part of the story and it's a significant part of the story i mean just just so we have it everybody's on the same page michael porter junior this season played about 2000 minutes 66% true shooting on 22% usage like and shot 40 he shot 45% from 3 on 7.2 per 36 minutes like that is a ludicrously efficient non-primary player and he's not going to be three out of 13 every night but so you have that as one part of it. it's like okay if he if he can't shoot and score in the way that he that the way that he did for most of the regular season they don't really have anybody who can pick up the slack or who you'd expect to in most games but i actually noticed it more defensively and the suns praise to them like to the the nets earlier of understanding that situ- the circumstances changed and while porter jr was attacked a lot defensively last year he, he improved, to his credit, both within that playoffs and also over the course of this year. And then he's been pretty awful over the last two games. Yeah, um, so Porter was the guy that I wrote about uh, at 538 for the Nuggets and basically like how good he was as the number two option once Jamal Murray went down and then how much he had improved from being like, you know, unplayable defensively in the playoffs last year to, you know, competence and at times even like an impactful defender just with the way he'd been contesting shots throughout the regular season. And I think an important thing of him not being able to to move the same way is so much of what he does 
offensively, and this is why I think, you know, KD correctly said that they're not really similar players, is essentially everything Porter does on offense comes away from the ball. It's all the way he moves around and creates space from his defender for Jokic to find him or Monte Morris to find him. Most of the time it's Jokic, let's be honest. But, you know, so... There was a play that I highlighted um, in in the regular season. I can't remember who it was against, but it was like Porter was essentially like lined up like a wide receiver across from his man and doing like, you know, a release off the line of scrimmage and then just like cut right behind Jokic for a dribble handoff and then rose up for a jumper. He tried to do that same thing last night and Torrey Craig was just like right there with him every step of the way and he couldn't get himself open. And that's just like, he is one of the best guys in the league at being able to shake free from his defender off the ball and just like create space for Jokic to find him. And all that dude needs because of how good a shooter he is, is like, you know, six inches of space and he's essentially wide open and you can't block him because he's 6'10 and jumps so high on his jumper and releases it from so high. And that's just not possible for him in this last game and a half or so. Um, And that just changes everything about their offense right now without Murray, because that's like, that's the secondary scoring threat for their offense is just Porter moving and Jokic finding him and it being incredibly easy for them to score because of the combination of Porter's size and shooting and cutting ability. And that's just not anywhere for them right now. And then obviously like he was a liability on defense last year, it largely because he didn't know what he was doing um, and didn't pay attention a lot of the time. And now it's just like, even if he's paying attention and knows what he's doing, he can't really move well enough you know, multiple times, like, uh, you know, like I mentioned before with like Blake Griffin, make him move his feet and change directions multiple times in quick succession with the way Porter's back is locked up right now or whatever is going on with him. He can't do that. And the Suns are taking advantage of that on the other end. So it's like the thing that makes him a special offensive player isn't there right now. And the improvements he made defensively um, from last year to this year don't matter because he can't move right now. So it's like, and they need him out there because they don't have that secondary scoring threat. And like, maybe Will Barton could be in if he was right. But if he can only play whatever it was, like 18 minutes that he played or something last 16. night. sixteen. Like, yeah, like that's just not enough time. Um, and Morris right now is just like missing every shot that he made in the first round. And along those lines, I think that the way I would describe it is that the issue for for the Nuggets, and it's not fair to expect this of any team, because we're who's best, whose second best player is out and whose third best player is so limited that he might as well be out, is that they don't have other guys that can scale into not only like the secondary role, but then also to replace that guy as like the tertiary and, and fourth options. Right. Like, I mean... So Aaron Gordon, talented as he is, that's just not the type of offensive player. Like that's just he he doesn't have the whole reason that he's such a good fit with the Nuggets was because they didn't need him to do that. Exactly. And he could just do the stuff he's good at and be, you know, like, you know, uh mountain range Draymond Green. Like and that's just, you know, if you ask him to do the stuff that was like too much for him in Orlando, it's like that sort of defeats the purpose of him having come to that team, you know? Exactly. And and so yeah, maybe Barton or Morris in a different world could do it, but and and it's not that's not a failing of Michael Malone. It's and, not a failing and look, of Morris did it in the first round. He did. You know? He did um, also because the Blazers are inconceivably bad defensively at the guard on the guard line. Um but also Morris yes. Morris was hitting shots that he'll probably hit at another point that's kind of parallel of the of the Buck series where there there is the true 
effectiveness of Monte Morris, like Chris Middleton, is between, like, well, for Morris, it's between the first round and the second round. For Middleton, it's just between where he is now and, you know, like, maybe the regular season or something else. But then the other challenge for the Nuggets is a fundamental one, which was the one I identified why I picked the Suns to win the series, is the Suns have great guards, and they have guards (laughs) that can create offensively in different circumstances. And Nikola Jokic, deserving regular season MVP, no hesitation for me, not saying he's the best player in the league, but he was the most valuable this year. But a specific limitation, which was always reasonable that it would come to the forefront in the playoffs, is... It is very difficult to play against a talented offensive team and handle a pick and roll involving Jokic two on two because he can only do a couple of different things and each of those couple different things leaves some sort of seep. And if that is so so you can either defend it two on two and then you're you know you're conceding something there or you can bring a third and what Phoenix did unbelievably well in game 1 and they didn't I don't think they had to do it as well in game 2 just because the margin for error was so much higher because all the stuff that that was going wrong with the Nuggets especially with Porter Jr is Generally, the way the the Nuggets were doing that is if you're bringing in a third, which they did a lot, is that then you need the person on the weak side corner to drop in to basically fill the void that that third player, that third player being drawn into the action. And what the Suns were doing unbelievably well is, okay, we're going to put Mikhail Bridges there. Mikhail Bridges, as he did more in, like, as Mark Jones puts it, the do-it-yourself toolkit, he did more of that in game one than we've really seen from him before. But... The thing that Mikhail Bridges like he can do can do really well is he can hit you know he can hit open jump shots feet set at a pretty decent rate and so what the Suns were doing is they said and this year at a much higher rate than he did in his first couple seasons exactly and so the Suns knew that if they ran the action in specific spots on the floor that. And they put bridges in specific spots on the floor. And in certain circumstances, like Crowder made more of those shots than you would have expected and other things. Like there, were, there was some variance that worked in the Suns' favor in game one. But you, but, but they, were, they understood that if we do this, either the Nuggets are going to concede a good shot for the guard, they're going to concede something to DeAndre Ayton, or... They're going to bring a third defender in, and the guy who's most likely going to be open is Bridges. And Chris Paul, if you give him a two-read a two-read play, not only is he going to make the right read damn near every time, but he's going to put the other player in the best circumstance to succeed. So it's not just like, okay, you need to pass the ball to Bridges— Maybe in, if it was another point guard, the ball would be a foot wide, and then if he when he has to go catch it, then the recovery can happen and the shot is not as good. Chris Paul's going to hit that guy in the shooting pocket or hit the big man in a spot where he can finish basically every single time. And so that was a real concern. And, and Booker, not the level of playmaker that Chris Paul is, but he can create the same sort of churn because he's a wonderful talent. And Chris Paul being Chris Paul in this series, for the most part, you know, he's not 100%, but he's doing really well. That has created a circumstance where the expected value of a Nuggets half-court possession is significantly higher, even if Porter Jr. were healthy, than a Nuggets half-court possession. Um, Yes. I also think just the Suns are doing a really good job. And I think um, Zach Lowe wrote about this just in terms of the um, the way they've done it all year, but they're just, they're not keeping that guy, the, the, the third guy's man still, 
You no. know, Bridges is, is lifting from the corner to the wing or he's cutting from the corner to the middle of the paint. And it's just it's just a little bit more difficult to guard a pick and roll where that weak side guy is moving around than if he's standing still. And a lot of teams don't want to move that guy around because he's not, you know, a movement shooter or because it messes with the reads a little bit at times. And, you know, your point guard isn't going to know exactly where the the outlet man is. But when you have Chris Paul in that spot making the decisions, he's going to know what the guy is doing. And when you have, you know, Crowder and Bridges, they're better standstill, but they're still guys that can shoot off the move a little bit. And Cam Johnson can shoot off the move a little bit. And Torrey Craig, when he's in that spot, he's just a good cutter and knows what to do. Like, it's a guy who played with Jokic, and, you know, it's it's obviously much different because they're not the same size. But, you know, it's similar to playing with Chris Paul, just in terms of them knowing where everybody's going to be at all times. Like, they've got guys who can make that kind of thing work. And when you're testing a team's defense with not just the pick and roll and not just a shooter on the weak side, but a guy who's moving around, it's just like it, it makes the recovery that much more difficult for whoever's helping. And it's just it's it's too much to handle when you don't have, you know, your entire personnel like the Nuggets don't have right now. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good way of putting it. And I my instinct is that the series doesn't end up being a sweep. I think the Nuggets, I mean Jokic is is too talented. They but but the fundamentals are there for it to go that way. And no team, I mean, has dealt with as much immediate adversity and responded to it as well, like if we're talking the last couple of years, as the Denver Nuggets in playoff series. You know, they went down 3-1 twice last year. They were down in so many of those games against the Clippers. But so I don't think they're going to give up, but it's also like what it, what what other buttons do they have to push? And mm-hmm. maybe there's an accumulation of a lot of stuff for them right now. And, and it's, it's and like, it's not like um I want to talk about Jazz Clippers in a little bit. It's not like there's mm-hmm. low hanging fruit for the Nuggets. Oh, we do these two or three things better, and that could be like a five or a ten point swing in a given game. Yeah, maybe they make more of their threes. Maybe they get to the free throw line a little bit more. But those aren't corrections. That's just things that haven't gone well so far. And when that happens, generally speaking, even if you know the series doesn't start until the till the road team wins the game, I think we have an idea of where it's going. Yeah, like it would be one thing, like oh, we need to deal with no Jamal Murray right now, or we need to deal with you know Porter is kind of hurt right now, or we need to deal with Barton is out and on a minute's limit, or we need to deal with Dozier is out, like. It's so many different things all at once, and they're playing against a team that's really well suited to testing them already. Right. Like, it's just, it's a lot to deal with all at the same time. And, you know, maybe you can deal with all of that against a team like Portland, where their defense just isn't up to the task of stopping you. But the Suns were a top 10 defense all season, you know? Um, and, and I think at times in the top five, I can't remember if they finished in the top five but you know it's 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 a really good defensive team and a really smart defensive team and a really good and smart offensive team you know it's just like i said it's a it's a lot to deal with and it's no you know it's no shame of not being able to deal with it all at once you know like it's it's really hard it's it's really hard to deal with all that when you're fully healthy right uh suns finished the year sixth on both offense and defense this year per 538 filtering out garbage time Uh, actually that's interesting i hadn't looked this up at the until at the very end of the year there were actually four different teams that finished in the top 10 on both offense and defense that is more than usual um the jazz can i guess sure i'm gonna say the jazz the suns um the Clippers? Yes. And it's gonna make me really the Sixers? 
The Bucks. Oh, but, oh I so should have known the that. Bucks, the Bucks finished seventh and <laughs> the Bucks finished seventh and tenth. Um, so how close were the Clippers and the Nuggets? I guess. Okay, so Utah was three on offense, one on defense. The Clippers were fourth on offense, ninth on defense. Suns, as I said, were six and six. Milwaukee was seven on offense, ten on defense. Um, the Sixers were thirteen and three, and and okay, it's a little bit outside on offense. Yeah, and then and I, I think some of that was like Embiid, you know, Embiid or various guys missing time late. Like I think they were, I think they were ten and ten at one point. Like they were in, they were in the top ten in both. Um, and then you, there are a bunch of teams that were top ten in one, and then in the twenties in the other, including the Blazers, the Mavericks, the Lakers, and the Nets on one side or the other. Yeah, I would. I think the Knicks qualify for that too. Yeah, twenties on offense, twenty fourth, twenty fourth and fourth. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but so yeah, let, I, let, I do let, want to talk about the other two series. We spent a yes. lot of time on these two that look like they're kind of going to be not as close as, as the other two. But I think why we, why we're drawn to them is because they're intellectually interesting and because we've learned a lot. Both those series have gone through two games. Like so for yeah. Clippers, Clippers, Jazz. Um, I mean, there was a, there was a Twitter, lot the way, to take Mike, away from Mike Conley is uh, is out again tonight. <sighs> But so I, I think that speaking of low hanging fruit, I mean, for me, the biggest takeaway of game one was that Ty Lu gave the Jazz too many, too many easier choices. Like Rondo made life easier on the Jazz defensively and Kennard made life easier on them. Or sorry, not Rondo. Actually, yeah, Ron, Rondo made it easier on them. Um, uh, uh, um, on, on when they were defending, and then and then Kennard made it easier on them offensively because they had a, they had a place to attack, and they sometimes had Rondo and Kennard out there together. Improving those sorts of things would help. Maybe some of that was that he uh, Lou didn't think he could play his best guys as much because they just dealt with the game seven, and you know like Batum had played forty two minutes and all that type of stuff. But the Jazz also like they executed really well. They you know Mitchell had this unbelievable second half. So I'm I'm very interested in where game two goes. Yeah, so um, I, I really would like to know why Lou felt he needed to go big for as long yes. as they did. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has asked him that. I haven't seen it, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, and I also want to know why why Rondo and Kennard got so many more minutes than men, who was their best of, best bench guy in the first round. Um, and like, if I'm suggesting you play a Florida State guy more, you know you should be playing that guy more. Um, <laughs> like, I, I really do not understand why he got, like, you know, six minutes or eight minutes or whatever it was in game one, especially when literally nothing was working against Mitchell. Like, why not give him a chance? It, I wholeheartedly agree. And Terrence Mann, like, so what was different with, so you think about Batum, and you're like, okay, Batum played 42 minutes in game seven. He's an, He's on the older side. Um, though it is funny because he's had such a long career, I think sometimes we, and, and he kind of looks a little bit older. We think of Batum as older than he is. He's 32. He's not like mm-hmm. 36 or anything like that. Um, Terrence Mann played 26 minutes in game seven. He's a young dude. I don't think that he was like, oh, he, unless he's dealing with an injury that we don't know about that. I don't think there's a reason that he was limited and couldn't play, couldn't play nearly as much. And there were also like multiple situations where, I didn't think the Clippers coaching staff did a good job understanding and utilizing the nuances of Quinn Snyder's rotation. So you have a pretty good idea when Rudy Gobert is going to be on and off the floor, at least when you know when he's going to be off the floor, because when he's on, maybe there shifts a little bit on foul trouble and everything else. But he's, you know, he's going to sit about the six minute mark of the first quarter and the third quarter, and then he's going to come back, ideally with Conley, but if not with Conley, still kind of, he's going to be on the same rotation either way. 
And they just matched him with Ingles when Conley's out. Sure. And so, okay, you can you can work with that. You can do it. But what like Zubats can be an effective player, but Derek Favor and and I mean the 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 Grizzlies killed him with a more traditional big, but that was because they had John Morant. Like John Morant's an unbelievable player. If you force Derek Favors to try to defend out on the perimeter, if you go small in those configurations, and let's say he's guarding Marcus Morris, you are, as the Jazz, conceding something that is either a wide-open shot on the perimeter, a pretty clear drive to the basket, or everything around the basket on the other side of the play. You know, like, because the Jazz, like many teams right now, they don't have a lot of ancillary rim protection. They don't, they don't, like... Royce O'Neal isn't going to make three, like five great stops at the basket. And if he does, he's probably going to be fouling a bunch too. Um, and so, yes, if you have Valanchunas and Ja Morant, you can go after Derek Favors at the basket. Sure. I mean, ja, I mean, you make him defend a little bit in space with the screen, have him navigate that, and you have a great driver, a great passer who's too, who's too fast for anybody. If you don't have that, then you then probably just go small and, and spaced out. And you're going to get a good look every time. And favors at this point in his career, yeah, maybe he'll get a couple offensive rebounds. He can get a couple lobs, but like he's not going to mash you. He's not going to kill you in those minutes, like by going small. And instead, he's like, well, let's play Zubats and see how it goes. And while it didn't, it, it wasn't like it worked out terribly for the Clippers. It also they they didn't create the advantage that they could have. So. The Jazz in that game were outscored by two points in favors 15 minutes. The Clippers should do better than that. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. Um, I, I, I also think, like, so part of the Rondo thing, I think, was because Jackson was in foul trouble. Yes. And he's like, I need to have a point guard on the court. But I just don't think their offense was the issue for them. Like, and, you know, y- yes, Rondo was incredible defensively in the playoffs for the Lakers last year, like a throwback to early in his career. That is not the Rondo we have come to see most years. Even when you get playoff Rondo, it's mostly him, you know, doing good things offensively in recent seasons until last year, or, you know, playoff Rondo, national TV Rondo, whatever you want to call it. Um, I just think it's it's more important for them to get a defender in that spot if they're not going to have Jackson on the court. Um, and, and, you know, Kennard scored whatever it was, 20 points, 18 points, something like that. Um, it's too easy of a target defensively. Um, and he's usually not going to score 18 of 7 or 9. Like you, there, I, I criticized Nate McMillan for this all the time when he, was in, when he was with the Pacers, which is just because a guy is hot in that game doesn't mean he's going to be hot for the entire rest of the game. And as you mentioned, he's right. so limited defensively that you're giving, you're giving up really good opportunities the other way. Yeah, um, it's all, uh, Nate McMillan. I used to get so angry and be like, "Let's keep switching Jeff Teague onto LeBron." Um, like, <laughs> yep. I just be like, "Dude, come." Or, on. or like, okay, the Pacers bench did well against the Cavs bench, which oftentimes wasn't that good. Let's keep them on against LeBron, and we'll see how that works yeah. out. Yeah. Um, well, I think Nate has made some improvements in terms of keeping guys on the bench for too long. Although I do think that. Um, so in the Knicks series in game two, he kept Trey Young on the bench too long, and the Knicks came back and won that game. Yep. And I think he did it again in game two against the Sixers, where the Sixers were already leading, but they extended their lead um, while he kept Trey on the bench too long. They they pushed it up from four to 13, and then he kept Trey on the bench, and they pushed it up to 19, and then he brought him back in. Um, just bring him back when it's 13. Like, you're all, the lead's... The game's already slipping away from you. Like, who cares if he plays 41 minutes as opposed to 38? 
So how how do you feel about this series? Like, did, did Game 1 change the way that you think about it, or is it like, okay, there's anomalous stuff on both sides, whether that's the Jazz missing 21 straight shots in the first half, or the Clippers not playing the right guys, possibly because they were too tired? I don't know that it necessarily changed my view of the series, like from a, you know, a 30,000 foot view, but I do think it was enormously important for the end result of the series. Sure. Because the Jazz won a game that they probably had no business winning, given that their second best switch attacker was out and they missed 20 consecutive shots. And that's a game the Clippers should win, you know, 99 times out of 100, and they didn't win it. So whatever margin for error they had is, you know, not there anymore. Yeah. And as somebody who picked the series, I picked Clippers in six. If you say this is one of the games the Clippers should have won based on availability and performance of the Jazz in the first half, you know, that kind of stuff, then, okay, so let's say theoretically this isn't the way it works, but let's say that shifts it from Clippers in six to there being a game seven in Salt Lake City. Like that, that alone would be a gargantuan shift in the series. Yes. And that assumes I was right, which I very well could be wrong. You know, like the Jazz are, the Jazz are a great team. They're well coached, all these sorts of things. I I do think like the more time they have to play without Conley, the less likely it is that Mitchell will be able to fry switches with exactly the same efficiency as he did in that first game like i don't think you can count on him making as many pull-up threes every game as he did in game one like it's just an anomalous performance even for a player as good as he is like i I don't know that he's gonna you know make make six threes and whatever it was like so i'm looking at now he was 10 of 15 on twos in game one like he's not gonna shoot 67 percent on twos and 40 percent on threes every game like that's just nobody's that good. Like, (laughs) I don't care how good a player is. That's just not going to happen every night. And like Bogdanovich and O'Neal and Ingles and even Clarkson are not as good at attacking switches as either Mitchell or Conley is. I think especially Conley has gotten much better at that over the last few years. Um, Obviously not last season because he was hurt a lot of the year, but as he's gotten older, I think he's gotten better at that just because he's been more willing to shoot pull-up jumpers um, from three, and he's gotten better at being even more crafty to get himself all the way to the rim and use you know that righty floater that he likes so much. Um, they re- they really need him, I think, in terms of you know being a switch attacker and like Mitchell being able to steal you one game with an anomalously good performance, even for him, um, is great. But I don't think you're going to get, you know, three of those if if Conley's out and, he, and it has to be Mitchell doing it every possession as opposed to doing it, you know, when it's advantageous for him to do so, which, you know, is more often than not. But it's not every possession. Agreed. And I will say, though, that, you know, we're, a, you know, we're, we're hours away from that game, knowing that Conley's going to be out. If the Clippers lose game two, they're in huge trouble because oh, yeah. then think- they have to win four out of five. And it's not like they have this insane home court advantage. Obviously, they lost three of their four home games in the last series. Mm. And they have to four out of five, even even if you are materially better than your opponent. Winning four out of five is extremely difficult because of shooting variance and execution and everything else, like all the other things that the Clippers got wrong, like 
three horrible inbounds plays or not getting back in transition defense or like all those little things that can go wrong that can cost you a game or two. And then the other team could just be better than you, which they are. So, and especially because you cannot have less Mike Conley moving forward than the Jazz will have had through the first two games. You you might have the same amount, which is zero, but you might also have more. And the more Mike Conley you get, the less they need to rely on Mie and Niang and maybe Clarkson. <laughs> I mean, Clarkson made a bunch of threes in game one, but you don't, you, you could, you can, if he's not going well, you can maneuver that. Right. Well, for the, the Clippers need to make it more painful for the Jazz to have Clarkson on the yes. court just in terms of the way they attack switches. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, you could say, well, like, the, the amount of limited defenders that are in the Jazz rotation right now, like, they should be doing what the Jazz were doing in game one. Yes. Um, what's the schedule in that series? Like, is there a three day break at any point? Um, so it's, thir- it's, it's Thursday. Thursday. It's every other day. They're every other day the entire way. Okay. So that's. Um, I think that somewhat benefits the Clippers just because there's not any um, break where it's like Conley has an extra day to come back. And like a pra- um, maybe like a full practice or something like that. Right. Um, just in terms of the, you know, the, the injury distribution. But that makes it, I think, even more important for them to win this game and put pressure on the Jazz to get Conley back as soon as possible. Right. I mean, we've gone for more than an hour, but we should talk a little bit about Hawks Sixers. I'll give you I'll give you the first word on it because um, I think that's more fair. Um, I mean, just as someone who's dealt with with that injury, um, I am really impressed with how good Embiid has looked with that, a torn meniscus. That blocked like, the fl- that blocked alley oop that he had or lob or whatever it was. Oh yeah, it's like like I, I I was I was basically out of my chair. So I'm like I didn't think he could do that. That's a play you see Simmons make a lot of the time. And for Embiid to move that way, like, I mean, I don't know, like, uh, obviously he didn't have surgery, so it's not bone on bone yet. I would imagine that if he gets surgery at some point, um, it'll be a removal and not a repair just because a removal is a much shorter recovery time. And generally they don't do repairs as you get older, just because it's not, um, I don't know. My doctor explained it to me 10 years ago and I don't remember why, but it's like at a certain point they do removals instead of repairs for, you know, medical reasons, whatever they are. Um, but it's dude looks freaking awesome. Um, and then I think so in game one, um, I think it was game one where Tobias was like really cooking um, Bogdanovich. That matchup, I think, is really important, especially now that Hunter is out for the rest of the series and the playoffs being like who is going to be on Simmons and Harris and can they make it difficult for one of those guys at all? I think that was why they started Solomon Hill. Um, but I don't think you have enough offensively when he's out there it's just like it's 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 too much of a we don't care if solomon hill beats us so they kind of need to have herder or gallo out there but then like both of those guys are kind of defensive liabilities too especially if they're going to have to guard harris or simmons um so it's it, it makes it really difficult for them and just like john collins can't be completely invisible like that dude was it was really really bad in game two i think and that's just that can't happen. Especially because he's one of the few like real competitive advantages they have now that the Sixers went to more logical defensive configurations. Is that Collins and 11 shots? I'm kind of okay with that. 
but four of eleven, and, and he looked kind of passive to me. Like, I, I just didn't, and and part of that was his pl- place within the offense, and I think some of that could be having Capella actually out there a little bit less, especially if you're going to be doubling Embiid, then you don't need Capella, or you put Capella theoretically on someone else. That would be another way to do it, but like maybe you, there are a couple different approaches there. But for me. The this is the type of series it comes up every comes up every year. I can't remember if there was one in the first round. There might have been. You would probably remember it better than I have. Of superior team now with Embiid being healthy. I mean, I picked the Hawks in this series, but that was thinking Embiid was going to be different than he is. Um, superior team loses game one. But there are all these things that they did wrong, which you wouldn't expect to continue in the series. They fix Mm -hmm. most, if not all of those things, and then they win game two pretty cleanly. And you're like, oh, okay, it's just a blip as opposed to changing the arc of the series. And that's part of why I think it's so hard to evaluate Clippers jazz when we're doing it is because we don't have the context of what game one was. And you don't want to be too like hindsight is 2020 and all that type of stuff. But like, I mean, for example, think about how differently we're, we're talking about and conceiving Bucks nets after game two than we were game one, where in that one, after game one, you're like, okay, you know, this injury happened. They need to change the game plan and everything else. And then after game two, you're like, oh, they're just screwed. (laughs) You know, that sort of (laughs) circumstance. So that's going to happen in Clippers, in Clippers jazz tonight. Maybe I think that series, it's going to be less ambiguous probably, well, it has to be less ambiguous than it was in Bucks Nets because wow. But that to me was was really the big storyline of game two of the Sixers. Like they okay, you put Ben Simmons on Trey Young. Trey Young's gonna have much you, you don't give Trey the same things you were doing. Uh, understanding that basically Solomon Hill can't really play in the series and now we know that DeAndre Hunter is out, so there are only these other options which are exceedingly limited defensively and both Herter and Gallinari were insanely efficient offensively in game two and yet that still wasn't enough to elevate the Hawks offense enough to you know really be dangerous like they shot 11 of 30 from three they but barely over 50 percent from two and the Sixers as you would expect unless Trey Young's going crazy the Sixers got to the line more so it's like okay so for me, that series, it's, and yes, there's the huge variant, variable of Embiid's availability and capability. But mm-hmm. in the games where he is available and capable, the Sixers have a huge advantage. And I don't think there's a way for the Hawks to counter it. Now, they will, they can and maybe will win some of those games just because they have a lot of capable offensive players. Maybe they score better and you get there. But to me, the way the Hawks win the series is Embiid not being available. Yeah, I think also so Gallo and... And uh, and Herder were great in the first half. Yes, um, you know the you mentioned they made the Hawks made eleven threes for the game. Six of them were from Gallo and Herder in the first half. Right. So they only made five um, other than that from those two guys. And like those guys, I think they combined for thirty points on fourteen shots in the first half, and they wound up with. 41 on 25 shots right so you know they 11 on 12 shots in the second half for them and it's like all right you know you live with that yeah um, and like, and like more atlanta, from everybody else right and atlanta had a 29 point third quarter but philly got 34 <laughs> yeah uh anything else around the league i mean you're you're into cba transactions and stuff too is there anything else that you've been thinking about while we've been going through this um I have two two small things that I'd like to run by you. Well, I think the the future of whatever Chris Paul is going to decide in the off season is important. Yeah, um, I, I have a friend who's a really good, really big Suns fan, and he's worried that Robert Sarver is not going to want to pay all of 
Bridges, Aiton, and Chris Paul um, and might decide to go cheap at point guard and be like, we're bringing back campaign and letting Chris walk. Um, like to me, the obvious move is give Chris Paul his three-year $100 million deal or whatever he wants, give Aiton and Bridges their market extensions and go cheaper at backup point guard where like campaign might've played over his head for these last two years. And um, you're, but, you're potentially a championship contender this year and the next couple. I mean, at some point Paul's going to age and it's hard to replace him, but if you're ever going to pay the tax, it's this, which is what drove me so crazy about the Nuggets and at times the Bucks too. Yeah. So, you know, what Chris wants and whether Starver is willing to give it to him, um, I think that's important. Um, I, you know, also just James Jones has done a really good job building that team. Like the Cam Johnson pick, like maybe he could have traded down and still gotten him. Maybe it wasn't the best value, but he's turned out to be a good player. And even though he hasn't been as important in this playoff run he's still you know an important piece for them um like they're just they're they're counting on bridges and crowder so much and then craig i think is just a better defender at this point and they need more of that than they need johnson shooting at the moment so it's just been those those three guys have sort of been more important for him and then like imagine if they had you know not jalen smith as their you know whatever it was the 10th pick like this year tyrese, like Hall- tyrese halliburton would be totally crazy yeah and you don't have to you know play chris paul with half an arm but granted it, it worked out for them in terms of chris still playing but it would be a lot easier to deal with anyway but i think james jones from the u um has done a really nice job and i think that you know it's it's easy to assume that he'll continue to just you know bring these guys back and whatnot but the sarver wild card is a wild card and i think that if chris opts out the point guard market is suddenly like extremely interesting this summer just in terms of him lowry conley you have some of the restricted guys that are going to be available i think the restricted free agency actually is going to be very interesting because a lot of the guys that i like the most in terms of like players that you know you can see a role for them on winning teams are restricted guys whether it's like gary trent josh hart malik monk like i think those guys all make sense on good teams in one way or another and they're all restricted and there are not many teams with cap space and like you know if you're the raptors Trent got like you traded Norm Powell for him like you want to bring him back but if somebody offers him you know four years and 72 million dollars is that really a deal that you want to match because that's basically your team then like that's well and it's and you get into the challenge with some of these guys um Collins could be another example Lowry Markkinen could be another where Lonzo um, where if they get above market value like the I'll call it the enduring legacy of the Otto Porter Jr. one or Crab you could bring up a couple of which is like when you match a negative value contract you have to be so sure that you're in the right place because if you aren't it becomes a huge problem unless somebody like unless the sean marks alan crab thing happens again where like you you get bailed out basically because the team still wants them that's sort of a circumstance right. or like i would argue to a certain extent that was d'angelo russell with the warriors and then to the wolves um but it could end up being but then you run into the case with some of those of like well then the alternative is losing them for nothing so like yeah new orleans has this like david griffin has this really challenging offseason in no small part because there are a lot of elements that affect the pelicans that are outside of griffin's control 
And while restricted free agency is all about falling in love, because that's the only way you're going to get one of those offer sheets, it's possible with some of their guys, uh, with, definitely with Lonzo. And so then, like, if, let's say somebody offers Lonzo $20 million, $22 million, $23 million a year, then you basically have your team, you know, unless you're going to make a move with Ingram down the line or something else, and that's risky. Um, I'll let you talk about that, and then I'll bring up my two. Yeah, um, so I, I think it's this, the same sort of situation for Lonzo as it is Josh Hart. Like, I think he's a very valuable player, especially if Zion is going to be like your point guard. I think he makes a lot of sense in that kind of construction, just as someone who can be a guard on offense and a forward on defense or the other way around. Um, But how much is that really worth to you when there are other guys you can presumably get to do similar things for less money if someone decides they're going to throw like, I don't know, four years and... 50 million or something like that at Josh Hart like you you already have Ingram on the max you're going to have to pay Zion the max obviously like the the Steven Adams extension I think is going to turn out to be an issue for them yep just because of you know the the way that their cap is set up now um so there's there's a lot of considerations and then like you know you have Lonzo on the market at the same time and then what do you do with that like all of a sudden your books are getting very crowded for a team that doesn't necessarily know what it's going to be in the future yet and it's like there's there's a lot of decision points there and i think the same thing is true with the hornets with malik monk like i think that he was a good bench player for them but you know you have rogier you just paid hayward you're gonna have to pay bridges washington or both at some point you still need a center like and yeah and Lamelo, like you know it's it's a lot and i think like i think those guys all to some degree or another are gettable and i think the same is true now especially in portland with norm powell who is a guy that i would love to see somebody go after pretty hard because they're going to have a new coach they're going to be concerned about like What's going to happen? Like, are we going to trade McCollum? Are we even going to bring back Nurkic? Like, I think there could be pretty seismic changes there, you know, whether it's Neil Olshay making the decisions or somebody else, or, you know, depending on who the coach is, like they traded Gary Trent for Powell. You would figure they want to bring him back, but I think there's a chance somebody could swoop in for him too. And remember, Powell is an unrestricted free agent, so he can also just say, I don't want to commit for four years to Portland if there's a chance that this whole thing blows up in one year. And then I would rather be somewhere making basically the same money that has, I can be more viable for four years. Like that's a a possibility too. Like it's both sides have to turn the key with an unrestricted free agent. I want to go briefly back to New Orleans and they're in a dangerous spot. John Hollinger's called it the bird rights trap. And for their guys are restricted, but it's the same basic theory, which is also this. When you don't really, have the flexibility to replace players sometimes general managers make bad decisions because it's unpalatable to get worse and i think that Mm -hmm. is a big fear for me with the pelicans is that Hart, Lamelo, or Lonzo, sorry, different ball. Lonzo or both get aggressive offers maybe on the fringes of reasonable matching. But we're a couple days into free agency. New Orleans knows who's off the board. There aren't really many trades. They can't open up that much cap space anyway. And they go, we can't take another step back. You know, right. we can't we can't be even worse in Zion's year three than we were in year two. Not be not because like, oh, he's definitely gonna leave or anything, but just because like he's an unbelievable talent and you don't wanna you don't wanna waste that and lose fan goodwill and and you know everything else and so maybe you say oh you convince yourself oh we can turn it around and all that and then if it turns sour you're screwed for four years and then then it becomes a real problem 
And so I think that's there. But I want to transition to the, the I said there were two teams and it's because they're in a parallel situation to an extent. Both Miami and Dallas got knocked out in the first round, albeit in very different fashion. And there are different points in the kind of franchise cycle. But both of them has this interesting and unusual choice, which is they can either stay over the cap and maybe pay, maybe not pay the luxury tax by largely keeping their group together. Or they can basically lose all of their pending free agents and have a usable amount of cap space. In the Mavericks case, the absolute max is about 35 mil. In the Heat case, unless they trade players under contract, it's about 21 due to that BAM extension. And it's not an easy choice for either of them. And at a certain point, you can do kind of like what James Jones did and a few others in other years where you can play it both ways, but that's a lot harder for the Heat because they have most of their things are in team options. And so which path those two go down is very important for the league because they're also both very good teams that are generally well run. I think also like they're, the the other thing they obviously have in common, and you can throw the Raptors in there too, is they were you know clearly setting up for a run at Giannis this summer. Mm-hmm. And now that that's not happening, there's a bunch of different paths they can go down. And what they choose obviously has a lot of cascading impacts, uh, both for, for their teams and for a lot of players and like for the rest of the league, like you mentioned. Yeah, that's a really good point and, and, very, and very important for kind of where things might be going from here. And it, it's also true that there might not necessarily be a correct path that is knowable right now. You might need to see the circumstances on the ground a little bit before we get there. Because, for example, what free agents? Kyle Lowry is a huge variable in actually both of these conversations. Like, I mean, you could make an argument that he would make sense on both teams. And it's there. we've heard more murmurs of him going to Miami than Dallas, but Lowry, as somebody who can defend above his size and who can initiate when he needs to, but can also play functionally off-ball, if the Mavericks want to get better right away and they're willing to sacrifice a little bit of their long-term ceiling, he would make them better. And like, I would rather have Lowry on their team next year than, than Tim Hardaway Jr. You do run the risk of the age and everything else, but it's, it's so important for where those franchises go because for both of them, once you go down one, you, it's very hard to change paths. Now, nobody has been better than Andy Ellsberg and the Heat to do that when they've had to. I mean, that crazy trade that they made with the, Grizzlies and and getting off of all that money and as well as Zach Kleiman has done that trade you know and, and it's not like it like ca- like kneecapped the Grizzlies or anything like that it, you know just put a lot of money on their books um well those, Justice Winslow has just been hurt like, yeah exactly you know, what are you gonna do but granted he was hurt when they traded for him so he was and has been hurt a lot but I I, I think that for both of them that's the challenge is you're very good teams that have star players now that well, Luke is a lot younger than Jimmy, but that are you don't you don't you don't know what the future holds, but you have an idea there. And each of them, there's merit on both sides. Now, I'm not as big a Tim Hardaway Jr. supporter as some are, and Josh Richardson had a brutal year. Like I thought he was going to be better, but well, they're also I, some, I can't remember whose podcast it was the other day. Somebody pointed out like people are just kind of glossing over the fact that Josh Richardson had COVID at the beginning of the year and missed more time with COVID than almost anybody else who had it in the league. And like Jason Tatum said that he now has to use an inhaler. Right. Yeah. That's that's an important thing. I, I, I totally forgotten about that to be honest. Yeah. Josh Richardson, like we don't know what he was dealing with throughout the season. Not a lot of guys really talked about like how it affected their day to day, like what it affected 
like their lives and their games and whatnot. We don't know. Like I'm, you know, maybe I'm not necessarily willing to totally write off. You're just going to be the same guy forever, and nothing about this was COVID related at all. But I'm not willing to say like he's just done because he was bad this year. You know, like I have no idea how it affected him. Like I haven't had COVID, and so I don't like personally know how it affects you just in terms of your ability to do whatever. Anyway, obviously I've I've read a lot and seen a lot and spoken to different people that have had it, but like playing in the NBA is hard enough when you're, you know, not compromised. So yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to see that moving forward. And, and Miami, I think in some ways is more compelling just because they made the finals last year. And how much does Pat Riley think is because he's always, oh, high. Man. I was hoping like you mentioned Andy Ellisberg before and you had to bring it back to Pat Riley now. Come on. I had to. Sorry. <laughs> but what, where he wants to go with this? Do, do they do they aim high again? Do they sacrifice the future again, give up some sort of future asset to clear a little bit of extra space and get someone even better? But there aren't that many good players in this class anyway. So I don't know. It's a lot less compelling. Yeah, there's also it, the question of, like, um, you know, how much longer are they going to be there? Yes. Um, you know, obviously, Riley is not young. Um, he's been doing things for a long time. That's why I have strong feelings about him because he was, you know, doing this when I was, you know, I'm 34 and he was left my favorite team when I was eight, you know? So it's, and that he had obviously long career before that in terms of, you know, his, his coaching career with the, you know, the Knicks and the Lakers. So, you know, he's granted everybody that talks about him is like, Oh, you know, he's still the same as he was when he was in his forties or whatever, but not going to do it forever. Not going to be there forever. Like who knows and how that plays in. And that, you know, I think that the same consideration could be happening with the Spurs, obviously pop, who knows how much longer he's going to coach. There were rumors for a while that he would just be done after the Olympics. Um, and who knows what's going to happen with that. Right. Yeah. We'll have to see. Uh, well, we could, you and I could talk a lot longer, but we should probably stop it here. Thank you so much for taking time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work all over the internet, including 538. And you should also follow him on Twitter at jadubin 5 J-A-D-U-B-I-N, then the number five, because then you can see where all the stuff goes up and you can check it when it comes out. Love having him on. And there's so much going on, honestly, right now. I mean, you have all the awards and everything else, but also playoff action and kind of setting the table for the off season. And so really exciting. Hopefully I'll be able to start watching some draft film pretty soon. Usually that starts around the conference finals, um, but we'll have to kind of see there. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that's particularly great for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week, so you can check that out when it pops in. Then also you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. Great if it's Apple Podcasts, but really wherever. And you can tell other people about the show, specific episode or the show in general. That can always help wherever you want to do it, social media. Otherwise, really do appreciate it. And you can check out my other work. Nate and I are still going strong with Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. Those are ongoing. And then we're doing the NBA cast roughly three times a week during this time of the year. And then we're doing Locker Room at least once a week, which is fun. Our regular time is Tuesdays, 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific. And then maybe we'll be adding some other stuff. It's going to kind of depend on our own bandwidth during this. And then as many of you know, I'm dealing with a broken collarbone. I should be writing pretty soon. I'm just, I'm working up like, let's say my, my slingless stamina is still 
still is still in the process. So I'll, uh, hopefully that'll be in the soonish range. I'm just still, you know, getting back to it. So hopefully we'll be seeing that in the near term. As always, Real GM Radio will be back next week. Don't know the guests, though. I have a few I have a few things in mind. And that's why it's great to subscribe. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, MBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I'll try to reply, but my promise is to read it. it goes to a new place. I always do that. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.